insurmountable mountain of a task. Now, for you, that task might be parenting. Okay, you're looking at your kid, and you're looking at his personality, his or her personality. You're looking at the world, and you're looking at Scripture, and we're going, how do we make all three of these work together well? How do we do that? For some of you, that is your insurmountable task. For others of us, it's uh, it's money, right? It's it's tax season. And we're going, okay, how do we not only balance the budget, but how do we not live excessively? How do we enjoy life but be frugal at the same time? Like, I don't know how this whole financial thing's supposed to work out. It seems almost impossible. We all have these impossible tasks that come before us. It might be, you know, college. How am I going to finish college? For some of you, it might be, how am I going to finish high school? For some of you, it's how, how am I going to finish middle school? How am I going to do this? We're all faced with insurmountable tasks. And the question for us this morning is, is, is how do we handle them? When you look at the, at the sphere and the spectrum of behaviors, we can, um, we can choose one of two. Over here on the left side, we have the, the, the why tries. The why tries. We come before this, this, this mountain of a task and we go, if it looks impossible, it probably is. And there's a lyricist that, uh, that illustrates this perfectly for us. I want to read to you the lyrics of a song of, of a popular band. Listen to how they describe uh, their insurmountable task. I haven't finished a thing since I started my life, and I don't feel much like starting now. Walking out lonely has worked like a charm. I'm the only one I have to let down. I can go on with my insecure nature. I can keep living off sympathy. I can tell all the people that all the success is a direct reflection on me. And listen to how they end the song. It's very helpless. It's very hopeless. They say this six times in the closing of the song. I haven't finished a thing since I started my life. And I don't feel much like starting now. And what they kind of encapsulate is this behavior that a lot of us tend to when we're before this insurmountable task is, if it looks impossible, then why try? Why try? The other end of the spectrum is this. It's if, if we have the why tries over here, over here we have the, the try and fail and repeat. Okay? If, if there's a mountain, then, that, <clears throat> then it's probably meant for it to be climbed. Right? If there's a task, I'm going to give it my best shot. And if I fail, I'm going to try again. Try, fail, repeat. Try, fail, repeat. Try, fail, repeat. What I want us to wrestle with this morning as we kind of consider our own proclivities towards impossible tasks is, is a phenomenon in Scripture. You see, there's, this, there's a task that's given to all humanity. There's a task that's not just given to the church. It's not just given to God's people. It's not just given to the Jews. There's this mountain of a task that's, that's given to all of humanity, and at its very nature, it's impossible. It doesn't seem impossible. It doesn't look impossible. By its very nature, it cannot be done. And this command God gives to all humanity. And so we ask the question, well, number one, what is that? What is that command? And the second thing is, is why would God do that? Let's answer the first question first. What is that command? The command is this. We don't find it one place in Scripture. We find it throughout Scripture. Old Testament and New Testament. The command is this. Be holy. Be perfect. Be blameless. Be righteous. Be holy because I am holy. We see it in Genesis when when God enters this relationship with Adam based on promises. We call these covenants. And he says, enjoy this earth. Rule over it. Subdue it. But this tree over here, do not eat of it. Stray but a little fail. Eat from that tree and you will surely die. Adam, you need to be perfect. You need to be perfect in this. Fast forward to Leviticus. 
When God is giving his law to his people, he reminds them, be holy, for I am holy. Fast forward to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and chapter 6. He says, keep all my statutes, all 613 of them. Keep them all, and not just some of the days of your life. In chapter 8, it says, all the days of your life. And some of us are hoping maybe this is just an Old Testament phenomenon. Peter jumps in in chapter 1 of 1 Peter and says, You've heard that it was written, Be holy as he is holy. And we're hoping that Jesus would come on the scene and maybe lighten the load for us. But, but here's what Jesus does. Jesus takes these laws and he has said, you, You've heard it said, uh, Do not commit murder. But I tell you, if you're angry with a man or a woman in your heart, it's as if you've killed them. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you've looked lustfully after a man or a woman in your heart, it's as if you've committed adultery. And he says, you know that command, love your neighbor? Well, guess what? Your enemy is your neighbor, so love your enemy. You're starting to feel the weight of this. You're kind of going, if that's the command of God, if that is the insurmountable task, then what are we to do? Scholars from the beginning of of the church have, have labeled this the weight and the burden of the law. It's a weight and it is a burden that we are not meant to carry. It's a weight and a burden that when, when we're underneath it, it feels so oppressive and so heavy and we feel so helpless. We, we go, why try? Or some of us would go, well, I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to give it a go. How do we live under a God who demands perfection? How do we navigate through life, through relationships, through work, through decisions, under a God that demands you to be holy, to be perfect, and to be blameless, as He is holy and perfect and blameless? How do we live life underneath this burden? Well, the good news for us this morning, and to put it simply, is that that we don't have to. The good news is this, is that Jesus comes not only to be our atonement, He comes not only to be our sacrifice. He he comes not only just to die in our place, but he offers us something else in addition to this. He says, I'm going to offer you my perfect righteousness. I'm going to offer you my perfect obedience. I'm going to let you plagiarize. I'm going to let you take credit for things that I have done and done perfectly. And in our passage this morning, we have one of the clearest snapshots of this. We have Jesus going toe-to-toe with with no minion, no no mere demon of the underworld, but with Satan himself. We see him going toe-to-toe with our great arch enemy, and we see him coming out victorious. What we see is this snapshot of him showing showing us just how perfect his obedience is. And so this is where we're going to land this morning. This is where we're going to look. We're going to look at Jesus' perfect obedience And we know it's perfect because of two reasons. We know that his obedience is perfect because of, number one, it's quality. So if you're taking notes, these are our two points this morning. We know it's perfect because of the quality of his obedience. And then we we know it's perfect because of the outcome, the result of his obedience. First, the quality of his obedience. This passage shows us that, um, that, that Christ's obedience is grade A. It is top shelf. It is choice obedience because this. His, Jesus knows that obedience isn't contractual. It's relational. Jesus knows that his obedience isn't contractual. It's relational. Here's what contractional obedience looks like. Contractional obedience looks like this. Perform. 
do what you're supposed to do. And then when you do that, then you get paid, right? That's how most of us get paid. That's how most of, of this world's economy works, is this contractual relationship, right? You perform a service, and if you perform that service to, to our standards, you'll be rewarded for it. What we need to realize this morning is that's, that's not God's economy. And we need to wrestle with the weight of that this morning. That's not, not how God's economy works. It's, it's the opposite. Sons and daughters of Christ get paid first. Let me illustrate. Look with me again at verse 17 in chapter 3. And, and consider the chronology here. All right? Jesus is about to begin his public ministry. He hasn't begun his public ministry yet. He hasn't gone to Galilee. He hasn't healed. He hasn't taught. He hasn't performed any sermons yet. He's about to go into his public ministry. He's about to perform, so to speak, right? And listen to this. Verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Notice the way in which the first person of the Trinity chooses to interact with the second person of the Trinity. He says, I'm, I'm not going to be to him like a, like a master and a servant. I'm not going to be to him like a captain and a soldier. I'm going to be to him as a son. And what he's communicating here to us is, is if you call someone your son, if you enter into a relationship with someone as your son, and we've known this story since Luke 2, right? This was announced long ago to the shepherds that this will be a son to him. What that means is that this son becomes an heir. Everything that is the father's is now the son's. And we see this expounded on a little further when the father says, he is my son, and not only is he my son, but he's beloved. He has all of my love. And in him I am well pleased. Not only do I love him, but he has my full approval. Now this should kind of make us feel a little uncomfortable here in, in our worldly economies because we're going, okay, wait a minute. This identity, this blessing, this, this love and this approval from the Father is coming long before his public ministry. Why would God do that? This is God's economy. Here's why. Look, look at the way in which Satan tempts Jesus. Um, we're not going to look at the temptations themselves. What is, Jesus, what is Satan actually tempting Jesus with? That's a whole other sermon, a whole other topic. But what I, what I want us to look at is... Is how is Satan tempting him? What are his tactics? What are his methods? And look with me at verse 3 in chapter 4. Notice Satan's tactics. And the tempter came to him and said, said what? If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. Here's what's going on underneath the narrative. Satan knows this. Jesus hasn't gone out and he hasn't performed anything yet. He hasn't done anything yet. But the Father has bestowed this grand blessing upon the Son. He has said, you're fully approved. You are fully loved. You are an heir. And I'm actually granting you the Holy Spirit, the power by which you're going to perform all your miracles, all your teachings. And what Satan wants to know as he approaches Jesus is, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that you are who the Father says you are? Do you really believe that you're an heir? Do you really believe that you are fully loved? Do you really believe that you have the God's full and unmeasured approval now and you haven't even done anything yet? Do you really believe that? Temptation feels a little heavier now, doesn't it? Jesus has nothing to go on. He has a, he's not halfway through his public ministry. He's not that end. We would tend to think that at the end of Jesus' ministry, this is where we hear the Father say, Oh, my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Good job. But what does the Father do? He puts it at the front end. And what Satan wants to know is, in, in his temptation, he's, he's not trying to get Jesus just to perform something that's wrong. He really wants Jesus 
to wrestle with this. He really wants to know, Jesus, do you believe that you are who the Father says you are? Do you really believe that you're a son? Do you really believe that you're approved of? Really? If you do, if you really think you're the Son of God, then, then do this. Turn these stones to bread. And how does Jesus respond? He responds with Scripture, right? He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And in, in the past, we're tempted to think that Scripture can kind of be like an amulet, like if we wear it around our neck or bring it out at the right times, like bad spirits will just kind of flee from us and they'll kind of run away. Um, and, and that's not what's happening here in, in, in this passage. Jesus isn't being cute. What he's saying is this. Satan, you're giving me a choice. You're saying I can listen to you. I can trust you or I can listen to my father. I can submit myself to my father and I can truly believe that I am who the father says I am. And what does he do? He quotes Deuteronomy 8. He quotes his father. When he says, it is written, he's actually saying, but my father says this. Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus says, okay, if given a choice between you, Satan, and my father, I'm going all in with the father. I'm going to choose to believe him. I'm going to choose to believe this, this scandalous story that before I even perform, before I even go out and do my public ministry, that right now I have the full approval and love and affection of my father. And I'm going to put my trust in that. What, what Jesus teaches us here about obedience is this. Is, is, obedience is perfect. And it's perfect because... We don't have to obey in, in hopes of what we think God will do. And Jesus shows us that here. He's not hoping that one day he will become a son, that he'll be fully approved and loved by God. He knows that. Instead, Jesus obeys because of what God has already done. And what he's teaching us here is that you and I, brothers and sisters, if we're in Christ, if we believe that we are too our sons and daughters of Jesus, fully approved in his eyes, we don't have to obey in hopes of one day being a son or daughter, we obey because we already are. We already are. Our second point is this. We also know Jesus' obedience is perfect because of the outcome, because of what happens as a result of it. How does the story tell us uh, the, the ending goes? How does this story end? Put it simply, Jesus wins Victory is the product of obedience. Um, look with me at verse 11, chapter 4. Then the devil left him. Two things to notice in Christ's perfect obedience. When we perfectly obey, when we perfectly express faith, when we place our trust in the Father, among other things, two things happen. Enemies retreat. And the kingdom is advanced. An enemy will retreat, and the kingdom is advanced. Now, I don't know a lot about physics, uh, but I do know this. I know the law of inertia says this, that if there's an object moving towards you, it takes a lot of energy to stop it, right? It takes a lot of energy to stop it. But I also know this. I know that if you're trying to stop an object and get it to move in the opposite direction, it takes a lot more energy to do that. It's one thing to stop a moving force, but it's another thing to stop a moving force and then move it backwards, 
It takes a lot of energy to do that. And what we see in this passage is that very phenomenon. The person who's coming in on offense here is Satan. Satan's got the ball. He's coming and he's attacking Jesus right at the jugular. He's saying, um, I'm, I'm not trying to get you just to do some random behavior here that I think is wrong. I'm actually trying to sever the connection of faith between you and your father. Before you've done anything. Jesus comes in, or Satan comes in on offense. And the story tells us in verse 11 that he leaves on defense. This is one of the greatest turnovers in, in scriptural history, to use a football term. Offense loses the ball. And Jesus picks it up and starts moving. And what happens? They don't just agree to disagree. Okay, here's the line. Satan, you stay over there. I'm staying over here. We're just going to agree to disagree. This is just the way the life's going to be. What happens? No. Satan is on defense. Satan moves back. The kingdom is advanced. Darkness is expelled because of what? Because of the light. That's why Jesus said later in his life, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You see, Satan knows our kryptonite. He knows our weaknesses. He knows it's our pride. He knows that when we go to someone's house, we don't like to go empty-handed. We like to bring something with us. And he knows he can attack our ego in that way. He knows our kryptonite. Well, you know what's helpful for us to know? It's helpful for us to know Satan's kryptonite too. You know what his kryptonite is? It's faith. When we say, you know, I I choose not to believe you, but this relationship between me and my father, I'm going to place all my trust in that. What happens? Offense turns to defense. Light casts out darkness. Satan is now on his heels. We're not on our heels. The kingdom is being advanced. And the enemy is in retreat. If you were to collect a list this morning, before you heard any of these topics or, or the discussion this morning, if you were just to examine your own mind and heart and ask yourself, what would it take to repel Satan? What would it take to not just, you know, go toe-to-toe and, and, and stalemate, but, but actually repel him, have him flee from you? What would be on your list? Time, energy, prayer, maybe some fasting, education, counsel. You know what the gospel tells us? It's strikingly simple. It's just this, faith. Will you believe what your father says? When everything is on the line, when the pressure comes, will you trust in what your father says? Will you truly believe that you are fully loved, fully approved, and that you are an heir to the kingdom of God? And if you believe that, you know what happens? Darkness is expelled. Going back to our question this morning, why did Jesus have to live for 33 years? It's, it's for this reason. We can't carry the burden. It's an insurmountable task. We cannot be holy as Jesus Christ is holy. But the great news of the gospel is, he says, you know, and we call this the double imputation. It's, it's not only am I going to take, Jesus says, not only am I going to take your guilt your shame, your record, and the penalty that you deserve and take it upon myself. But I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you my perfect righteousness. I'm going to give you my perfect obedience. So when the Father looks at you, He doesn't see you anymore. He sees me. He sees perfection. He sees a son. He sees a daughter. And one in which He fully loves and is fully approved of. And one of the questions, and you might be thinking this already, is... And it's appropriate to think so. But if Jesus is our perfect obedience, if that is truly who he is, and that is truly one of the roles in which he has come to fulfill on our behalf, does that mean we don't have to obey? Does that mean we have freedom not to obey? 
Does that mean we can just go on living life as we want to? If he's our perfect obedience, and if Christ, and if God sees us as Christ, then, then why be holy? Then why obey? Do we still have to obey? And the answer to that question is yes, but we get to obey differently. We get to obey differently. And let me illustrate it this way. In 1984, the Olympics were being held in Los Angeles. And it was the, the year where Mary Loretton kind of became a household name. Um, and that year, all the commentators, all, all, all the smart folks were saying, you know, the Romanians, they've got the gymnastics covered this year. They're going to sweep the medals. They're going to destroy everybody. But there was this one American, Mary Lou Retton, who was, who was giving the Romanians a run for their money. And to make a long story short, we fast forward through all the rounds, all the, uh, all the events, and we come to the very last two events. And the very last two events are, are to be performed first by the Romanian uh, she has one more uh, event to exercise, and then Mary Lou Retton gets the last shot. And, and going into these last two events, the Romanians are five one-hundredths of a point ahead. It's a close race, okay? And uh, Mary Lou Retton is five one-hundredths behind, so she's in second place, and the Romanians are in first place. Here's what happens. Uh, the Romanian gets up, and she's performing on the uh, uneven bars. She does her routine. And if she just does a solid performance, if she just does well, the gold is kind of hers to lose. So she gets up there, performs her routine, doesn't stick the landing. She falters a little bit. She doesn't get a perfect score. She gets a 9-9, which means this. For Mary Lou Retton, who's who's performing last, the last event of the day, because the Romanian got a 9-9, if if Mary Lou gets a 9-9, she gets the silver. She goes home first loser. If she gets a 9.95, she ties for first place. But if she gets a perfect 10, if she performs flawlessly, if she is perfect, if she sticks the landing, if she nails it, if she is free from error and gets a perfect 10, she alone will go home as champion. She alone will go home with the gold. So here's what happens. You know, she's in front of a home crowd. It's Los Angeles. Everybody's screaming. Everybody's yelling. She's at the, the end of the runway. I don't know what you call it. I'm not a gymnast. But it's that long thing that you run on. She's at the end of the runway. She hits the springboard. She vaults. She flips in the air. And it was like the mat was made of flypaper. She sticks it. And she sticks it and she knows it. She throws her hands up in victory. She smiles. She almost cries. She knows she nailed it. And the next few moments are tense because they're waiting for the scoreboard to pop up, right? And the the scorekeepers are collecting their scores. They're doing the average. And then after about two minutes, the score pops up. (sighs) The crowd goes crazy. It's a perfect 10. Perfect 10. She goes home champion. She goes home with a gold. Now, as amazing as that is, that's that's not how the story ends. What happens next is, is just as amazing. The crowd is cheering. Uh, she's hugging her coaches. Everybody's so excited. And then she looks at her coach, Bella Carosi, and she says, I, I want to jump again. And he says, he says, what? And what I didn't know is that when you, when you vault, you get two jumps. Just in case you don't do well on the first one, you can jump again. I don't know if the rules have changed since then, but that's the way they were in 1984. And she told Bella, she said, I want to jump again. And he's like, you've already secured the gold. There's, there's nothing you can do to lose it now. Why, why would you want to jump again? And she said, here's, here's why I want to jump again. In my first jump, I jumped with the weight of the world on me. With, a, with the weight of five one-hundredths of a point on my back. With the gold dangling in front of me just out of reach. And that was pressure like I've never felt before. And she says, I want to jump as a champion. 
I want to jump as a winner. I want to jump with that pressure off. I want to know what it feels like to jump a second time, this time not with the weight of the world, but as the gold medalist. I want to jump again. And they said, can't argue with that. Go for it. So she ran. She jumped. She hit the springboard. She flipped. She nailed it again. Let me ask us a question this morning. When we consider our obedience before the Lord, and as we consider our relationship to the Lord and this command, this insurmountable task to, to be holy as I am a holy, which of these vaults, which of these jumps does your posture and does your attitude represent more? Does it re- represent the first one? You feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulder. You feel like the gold medal is out there. You feel like, gosh, if I can just perform, if I can do what I want to do, and if I, if I can make it over this insurmountable hill, I think I can be holy. If I can do it, The gold medal will be mine. I'll be a son. I'll be fully approved. I'll be fully loved. Does that resemble your attitude? Your posture towards obedience? Or is it more the second? When you wake up in the morning, you wake up with a smile because you you remember that I have a champion that has gone before us. He has kept the law perfectly. He has taken the burden of the law upon his back. And for 33 years lived flawlessly underneath it. And he gave that to me. He has given me his gold medal. And now I get to jump. I get to live this life as a champion. I get to obey like it's my hobby, like it's my joy. If you could have seen Mary Lou Retton's expression on the second jump, she got up there like a little girl. She was just clapping and high-fiving and just smiling. She was coming out of her skin like it was just a hobby, like something she just did for fun. And listen, friends, what the gospel tells us is that Jesus has already secured our perfect obedience. And what that does for us, what that grace and what that love does for us is that makes us want to obey like it's our hobby. Like we want to. And like David says in the Psalms, Lord, I love your law. I delight in keeping them. We go, what? Why do we delight in keeping them? Because we know our future doesn't rest on them. Our future has been secured in the one who has kept the law himself. So what does your attitude resemble this morning? Do you resemble more the first vault or the second vault? Do you obey out of joy, out of love, like it's your hobby because you want to or because you feel like there's something out there that you're trying to attain? If it resembles more the first, consider these words of Paul to the church in Rome as he's discussing this very topic. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What I'm suggesting to us this morning is this, is when we wake up in the morning... And we interact with the Lord. And if we truly believe that we are who the Father says we are, that we are sons and daughters in Jesus Christ, and there is nothing that can shake our security or His love in us, there is no power in this room, in this world. There is no force, alien or domestic, or even Satan himself, that can stop you from obeying. You'll want to. It will no longer be obligatory. It will be no longer riddled with duty. You'll get up and you'll do it before you even know it. 
You'll read your scriptures not because you feel like you have to today. You'll read them because you know, I get to hear my father again. And I can't wait to do it. Does it mean we have to stop obeying? No, it just means we get to obey now for different reasons. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Spirit, we pray that you would grant us no rest this morning until we find our rest. Not only in the atonement of Jesus Christ, the one who took the penalty of our sin upon his back and paid the ultimate price, but who also gave us his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience, became the champion for us so that we don't have to dance and perform for you anymore. All we have to do is respond. Spirit, allow us to leave here this morning as heirs, not as contract workers in your kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.